0: Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis, everyone. This week, our guests are going to be Holly Jansen-Fulkerson from Memphis Heritage. And then after the break, Ray Brown's going to be here to talk with me. He's one of our regular commentators to talk to me about a recent uh, land use case, a proposal to put a convenience store and gas station at the corner of Sam Cooper Boulevard and Hollywood Streets. And then also kind of a larger conversation just about Summer Avenue, some of the things that are happening there, some recent zoning proposals, and just going to kind of talk that over. And so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, I'd like to welcome Holly from Memphis Heritage, uh, who's agreed to be our guest this week on our new show. So welcome, Holly.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Emily. And I'm excited about Ray Brown's uh, talk as well.
0: Yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, I think I told you i'm gonna I'm gonna have regular guests, but then I'm also gonna have sort of a little bit of a this is my idea anyway, have a little a bit of a rotating cast of commentators to come in on a regular basis and you know, reflect on what the earlier guest talked about, but also just talk about some things um that maybe were in the paper this week. or of course, Ray was very involved in the in the um proposal on. Sam Cooper. So really interested in his perspectives on that. So, but let's talk about Memphis heritage first. So first of all, Holly, just give me a little bit of your personal story. How'd you get to Memphis heritage? If you're not from Memphis, how'd you get to Memphis? How'd you get interested in historic preservation? All that stuff. And Two minutes.
1: <laughs> okay. Very good. Very good. Um, So, well, I th- I've been given this spiel a lot recently, uh, you know, as the new director with Memphis Heritage. So I, I, I got it down to a, a concise statement. Um, So I'm not from Memphis. Um, I am actually from Tallahassee, Florida. And uh, I moved here by way of Mobile, Alabama. And uh, I have enjoyed a career in museums for uh, a little over 10 years Uh at this point. Um, we moved, my husband and I moved to Memphis a little over four years ago um, with his job. And it's turned out to be one of the best decisions we've ever made. We just really love Memphis. And um, before I came on board with Memphis Heritage back in January, I was the historic properties manager for the city. So I uh, ran the Mallory Neely and McGevney House Museums under the Pink Palace family of museums. So, um, this is my first foray into historic preservation, which is, you know, similar in a lot of ways to museums, but also very different. And it's been a really uh, exciting change, and I'm learning so much every day, and I love it.
0: I'm not sure everyone really knows exactly what Memphis Heritage is. They see it in the paper, and I want to ask you in a minute about some of the Perceptions, misperceptions, but just give us the elevator speech about Memphis heritage, including what some of its programs are.
1: Sure. So um, Memphis Heritage is the only historic preservation nonprofit organization for all of Shelby County. We have been around since 1975. So over 45 years, uh, we have been working our mission to educate and advocate for historic preservation. And and that's really what we do. We educate and we advocate. We um, offer educational programs to, uh, to the community about different historic preservation topics. And we also work as a support organization with neighborhoods and other local organizations who have historic preservation issues. And so we we act as a support organization to help them navigate those processes and, um, you know, to, to save our buildings.
0: This question is gonna sound obvious. One of my goals in life is to demystify jargon. So sometimes that means asking very obvious questions. So I wanna ask you, what is historic preservation?
1: Historic preservation, I guess, is, uh, is just, Working to save the architectural integrity of um, of buildings, neighborhoods, our our entire city, and our entire county. Um, to uh, it, it's. The key part is the architectural integrity, but you know we're also interested in, in more than just architecture. Places have meanings for people. And there's a lot of history and memories involved in a lot of places. And so that's what we work to do is to preserve not only the architecture, but the history in general and the memories that people have about places.
0: Can you elaborate on that? I really, that is really res- resonating with me. I think partly because of my work in recent years, been very focused on, you know, stories, the stories of neighborhoods and say a little more about that if you can.
1: Sure. Um, well, just, you know, the, one of the things that's been most interesting to me and one of the reasons why I wanted to switch from museums to historic preservation is is that historic Unlike museums, where you're, you know, working to preserve a certain kind of history in the context of a museum historic preservation is so much bigger than that, you know, and it, and it affects every building in, in different ways. And the idea that, that we can save places so that people can live there and work there and play there um, and invest in, in these places is a really exciting thing for me Um, because it all just goes back to, place and and places matter and and places are important
0: that that's just music to my ears. I couldn't agree with you more. And I don't want to get too much to digress too much, But one of the interesting things about historic preservation is, you know, underneath that, there's all kinds of interesting sub efforts, like there's efforts to preserve historic landscapes, historic waterways. Um, as you said, places. It's not people think historic preservation's just about buildings, but it's infrastructure, historic infrastructure. Um, it's not just about buildings
1: right. No, absolutely not. and and Memphis Heritage's mission um is is broader than buildings, too. You know, we talk about parks and other uh, and waterways and and just historic um, yeah, just historic places.
0: So, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and this um, dives in a little more to some of Memphis Heritage's activities of the last several years. Um, Memphis Heritage has been very involved in a number of local advocacy efforts in the recent years. And I think sometimes people, um, you know, people who know about Memphis Heritage. Half of them think of Memphis Heritage as a do-gooder organization that's like stopping the greedy developers. And then other people think, oh, Memphis Heritage again. They're just anti-development. You know, our city's not going to move forward. We won't have economic development. You know, those those crazy people that lay down in front of bulldozers. And of course, it's a much more nuanced situation, but also... You can't really generalize. So, what is one uh, you came into? I definitely think that to a lot of people, that's what Memphis heritage is now. And so, reflect on that a little bit, uh, if you could. Um, I know it's it's kind of an open ended question, but just interested in your thoughts. And then, and then maybe talk about a couple um, particular cases that that Memphis heritage advocated for that. that were that were wins that weren't wins, or maybe uh, upon reflection turned out differently than anybody thought. I'm rambling as usual, but I think yeah. <laughs> you I think you know what I'm I'm struggling in my own mind to sort of think about Memphis Heritage is such a great organization, and you know what what what's the what's the way forward look like, and especially as it relates to advocacy, which is important.
1: Sure. Sure. So um, I'll start, I think, with the, the first part of your question is, you know, what about the different uh, you know, perceptions that people have about our organization. And um, I would say that we are definitely not opposed to development at all, um, as long as it's done responsibly and, you know, within the the guidelines of, of the laws that are set forth um, that govern these sorts of things. And and also, you know, development that is wanted by the neighborhood i would say we we are adamantly opposed to unwanted development but if it's you know development that is tastefully done takes into consideration the character um of of the area where the development is proposed you know we're we're all about that, um, and and anytime that a building can can be saved or a district and and be adaptively reused, is a hundred percent what we're about. So, um, it, it, and uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you know the the idea that we're here to fight the good fight against the greedy developers. Um, that is kind of true, <laughs> uh, and there's a lot of, of that that um, you know takes up a lot of, but my my day in and day out kind of work around here. So um, I hope that answered the first part of of the question. And then um, in regards to uh, you know things, campaigns that we've been involved in in the past, there's been a lot of successes and there's been a lot of failures for sure. Um, and just like you said, uh, Emily, about you know, things that perhaps maybe we thought was a success at the time, you know, now looking back, maybe we think differently about it. Some of the, uh, the major campaigns that we've been involved in over the years um, in terms of successes, I would say, include Crosstown Concourse, Tennessee Brewery, um, you know, those are two major ones that that come to mind. Um, in, in terms of you know campaigns that that w- could be considered failures are considered failures. Uh, the CVS at Union and Cooper that was a, a major loss, um, a, a very disappointing loss. I, I think uh, that my predecessor June West considers that you know one of the. biggest losses um of our organization so uh and then you know there's other projects um where there's mixed reviews like 19th century club um chick-fil-a on union uh some people are you know major fans of of both of the ways that that those projects turned out and and other people not so much so uh, you know everybody has a right to their own opinion. Um, I would say that since I have been involved since January um, there's been a lot going on and you would you might think that you know how does the pandemic affect everything that's happening I would say that the pandemic has really not held up development in in a lot of cases at all um, and so things have been really busy and i kind of had to hit the ground running from uh when from like day one uh and i would say that most of the cases that we have been involved in i would count them as successes thus far in in my 10 months here um Actually, I would say they've all been successes in terms of helping me to understand this field and how things work, because I have learned extremely important lessons from every single campaign that we've been involved in. That's probably the way it's always going to be, you know. So uh, there's there's been some what I consider major victories um, over the summer. There was a uh, proposed development at Graves Elementary School in Whitehaven, and Elvis Presley Enterprises wanted to turn that into a light manufacturing facility Um, that was actually passed by the Land Use Control Board on two different occasions. And we were really prepared, you know, to Except the fact that it looks like there's going to be a factory going in there, um, but there there was some major lobbying um, of the the city council, and the city council came around and and rejected the application. So um, that was a huge success uh, in terms of failures. Like I said, I, you know, there's not been any major failures just yet, but there are a couple of cases of huge concern um, right on the horizon. The biggest is uh, nylon net, the nylon net building at seven Vans. Right. Yeah. And um, you know, that was recently announced that they, well, the application uh, that was submitted back in July listed that the the newer portion of the building was going to have to be demolished. And we kind of understood that. But then now the plans have changed again and they're looking to demolish the entire building.
0: Holly, just back up, if you would, for a second, and I don't want to get you derailed, but so what so, is what the Nylon is- building and what was proposed and then what, how, how is the proposal changed just very briefly and where, sure. and where is it?
1: Sure. Okay. So the Nylon Net building is at 7 Vance. It's uh, located downtown, um, like right at, uh, right at just past Front Street. Um, The building, uh, the main portion of the building was built in the early 1900s. And it's been a few things over the years. The reason it has the name Nylon Net building is because the last occupant was the Nylon Net manufacturing company and they manufactured nets um like all kinds of nets uh for you know the fishermen for sports uh those sorts of things so the building has been vacant for decades and uh it has changed hands a few times um and now the um proposed developer uh is um Is chance Carlisle and he I I think the sale of the building is not yet complete and I think it's contingent upon what happens at the Board of Adjustment uh, later this month but um, anyways in July the plans were announced that Carlisle wanted to turn it into apartments and uh, and that request was approved well now um, that request also included them demolishing a portion of the building that had been damaged by fire uh, I believe in the 1960s and and like I mentioned uh, you know we we weren't super thrilled about that but we understood you know that that portion of the building just couldn't be saved well now they have come back and apparently the from a budget standpoint they cannot make it work to preserve the entire building and so they are requesting another variance from the Board of Adjustment to increase the amount of apartment units and um, yeah if that passes um, then it, it seems very likely that the building will be demolished if it does not if they're not granted the variance it's kind of unclear at this point what might happen moving forward. Okay,
0: thank you. So you reminded me about a couple of things. First of all, um I meant at the beginning to mention June West, the longtime former executive director of Memphis Heritage who, you know, led many of these advocacy efforts, also had some incredible fundraising success and Uh, Leaves big shoes. The June is still there in a in a a development role, but we want to acknowledge her and um, because I know you're building on a very strong foundation that she left.
1: Absolutely, and and also just to add in there, um, I'm so glad that she's not officially retired yet because she's been such an amazing mentor to me and and helped me to you know hit the ground running.
0: The other thing um, you mentioned the union the CVS on Union, and I do, you and I have talked offline about um, churches, um, adaptive reuse of churches, or when churches get torn down for future development. I feel like there's several places in play right now, and I want to do a future Memphis Metropolis show just on that subject. So it's very interesting, and there's all kinds of challenges around that, which I think it were exemplified by the the case on union, but uh, anyway, just stay tuned, everybody, because we're going to do a deeper dive into uh, redevelopment of churches and church properties here. Hopefully, over the next month or so.
1: It really is such a hot topic um, in Memphis and and nationally too. Um, there's a lot of things. Like that's going on all over the
0: country. But it's it's so. a conundrum. I mean it's Anyways, it's very, very challenging. For sure. So um I wanted just to wrap up by asking you on um, you know, what are some of the new directions you'd like Memphis Heritage right. to go in um over the in your tenure? What are some things you're working on that are new to the organization? um, just share, share with us. Cause I know from talking to you, you're working on some really cool things I want people to know about.
1: Great. Well, thank you. Yeah. We, um, we've got a lot of things in the works right now. Um, one of our, uh, something I'm super excited to announce, and Emily, you don't even know this yet. Um, It was just announced yesterday. Uh, We received uh, funding for a project um, from the city council. We applied for a city council grant um, for a project related to raising awareness about historic preservation in communities of color and to begin to identify properties in communities of color that are eligible for local and national designations.
0: Wow, that's huge. And
1: yeah, it's Congratulations. really great. Thank you. Thank you. We're we're thrilled about it. Um, so I don't know if I should say this on your podcast, but I, I'm, I'm so glad about it. But on the other hand, I was like, I don't even care if we get this money or not because we're moving we're doing forward this. with this.
0: I know the yeah, We're doing we're this, somehow. sister, whether or not we get funding.
1: Right. Yes. The will way. help.
0: I promise you.
1: We are going to make this happen. Yeah. And this is, you know, I've been assembling a project team for the last several months. Um, I've talked to a lot of really great people with a lot of experience. Um, and they've been tremendously helpful in advising us on, on how best to proceed. And the vision for this project has actually grown. Exponentially. Why, why is uh, this
0: I, important, Holly, for Memphis, but also in terms of how historic preservation has been done in our country historically?
1: Sure. So um, this uh, this is a topic again that is is being discussed at the national level. Um, you know, as as all everyone out there is aware of our you know current issues in, in our country and, and current events and things that have, you know, come to light over the summer and um, the fight against systemic racism is in full swing. And that's exactly what this project is all about. So the, National Register of Historic Places, um, only 2% of the 95,000 properties in across the country, only 2% are related to the African-American experience, and that's just really not acceptable. Uh, on the national level, the National Park Service has launched a campaign, hashtag Tell the Full Story, and they are actively working to remedy this and to make sure that we're preserving all of our American history and, and not just a certain segment of the population. Uh, the goal of our project is to have to facilitate that conversation at the local level. So um, there are 16 different local landmarks, districts in Memphis, and only three of them are related to African-American history. So we are looking to change that and and we want to get more properties listed and protected and um and yeah that that's our project.
0: Well, another thing I love about this idea is that it really just hopefully brings more people into the historic preservation tent. You know, I do think people think historic preservation is like old white ladies in antebellum houses maybe wearing period outfits <laughs>
1: yes <laughs> With a that's a lot of a lot of you know what the way it used to be and the way that it still is one one uh, component of this project that i'm extra excited about um is the fact that a lot of this funding that we have received and we will be receiving in the future um is going to go to pay students to work as paid interns for us in the past this kind of project we would have employed unpaid interns and and his history, the history profession across the board oftentimes requires internships as a requirement for graduation. And most of the time those internships are unpaid, which really excludes participation from a lot of people. So I am really excited that we have received the funding and hopefully will continue to receive funding to pay students to do this work. And because that's that's what needs to happen in order to change the system. So,
0: what uh, sort of tangible outcomes would you like to see? Is it more historic? You know, is it more historic districts locally, or is it is it a local register of important places? Is it more applications to the National Register? Is it greater awareness? What are the things? Is there a binder? I guess, of course, it's not a binder anymore. <laughs> but uh, what's the what's the take? what are the outcomes you're looking for for this initial stage?
1: for this initial stage uh it's really just to get into communities that have um, that portion of it has yet to be decided I want to work in every community um eventually and and I think that we will but for right now you know we can't we can't start like that so it'll be identifying the communities that um, that want us to work with them and raising awareness of historic preservation providing educational opportunities related to historic preservation and the biggest thing would be I guess beginning to identify which buildings and districts are available for local and national designation Uh, I would say that at this point I think that local um, historic status is is perhaps more effective in protecting some of the buildings that, that I hope to target. Um, but a national register nomination is isn't also a really great goal. Um, that's just for this initial project, but but some of the things that I've learned over the last few months in assembling this project team is that perhaps local and national designations aren't appropriate for every single property, and so there are other ways that we can work to protect those. So over the the long years-long course of this project, I I hope to explore all of the avenues that are available to us to preserve our history. And
0: how this is probably a little bit in the weeds, but what about important properties that are no longer there or that have, you know, in historic preservation, if something has been altered too much, it's just, that's it. And, um, but in, you know, lower income communities, that certainly could be the case. Things have been significantly modified or even torn down. How are you going to document and do storytelling around those places as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Before I answer that exact question, I I also, you've made a really great point about losing our historic places. And and that is, historical preservation is always, historic preservation always goes back to the architecture. And if something is not there, then it's not there, Um, which is exactly why we need to get into all of our communities and make sure that we're, Doing the best we can to protect things as they are now, um, and it's it, we really need to work with a sense of urgency because there's a lot of dilapidated properties that are in danger of being lost forever. Um, now, to answer your your question about what about the places that are already gone, um, that's huge. That's that is so huge, and that's one of the ways in which I feel like the project has grown. You know, even beyond my initial vision. And I really hope that we can uh, work with other organizations, including local arts organizations uh, and and other people to Remember these places as well. And I imagine this really as a major group effort with all of us, you know, working side by side, focusing on our own missions, but helping each other as well.
0: Okay, great. I really look forward to hearing more about that. So my guest today has been Holly Jansen Fulkerson from memphis heritage the relatively new ish executive director so holly thank you so much for being on the program today and stay tuned everybody because after the break we're going to have ray brown talking about broad avenue sam cooper summer avenue a whole bunch of discussion around those places in memphis so stay tuned that'll be coming up right after the break and thank you holly
1: Thanks, Emily.
0: You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. We're back with the second half of Memphis Metropolis, and I'm pleased to introduce Ray Brown, who's going to be another one of our regular commentators, riffing with me on a variety of subjects of interest to me and to the commentators on the second half of our show. So Ray is a local urban designer. We've known each other for several years. We met, I think, on the board of the Memphis Regional Design Center, and have had an opportunity to stay in touch and work together on some things. So welcome, Ray.
2: Thank you, Emily. Glad to be here.
0: So one of the things I wanted to talk about, it's been in the news lately quite a bit, um, which was a proposed convenience store and gas station at the corner of Sam Cooper Boulevard and Hollywood Streets. And although that would seem like a, Sam Cooper Boulevard would seem like a logical place for uh, that kind of a facility, it was very controversial and ultimately was defeated by the Board of Adjustment, which is one of our local planning decision-making boards. So I know you you were involved as a volunteer in that project, but I thought just as... You could tell us from your perspective, you were on the Board of Adjustments for a while, and and I was just wondering if you could tell us from your perspective, what, was the, what were the problems with the application for that? Why was that not a good idea for that spot, in your opinion, and the community's opinion?
2: Well, it really boiled down to uh, several factors. The community took the lead in opposing the store, the proposed store, largely because they felt it to be out of character with what they have been trying to for years to move Broad Avenue toward, which is a more pedestrian-friendly, a more bike-friendly, a more walkable area. And it's not happening overnight. It's happening uh, over time, but it's taking a lot of energy and effort, and they've had successes, and they've had setbacks, and they saw this particular land use as a setback. They felt that it was going to generate too much automobile traffic. It was going to be out of character with their what they're trying to do with the area, what they're trying to do with the neighborhood. They had, um, it, it basically was an incompatible land use for that strip of stores that exist along a sidewalk and are very, uh, very pedestrian oriented. They also had some concerns about environmental issues. You know, anytime you bury tanks from a service station, that causes problems trying to reuse the site later for any other purpose. There's also the possibility of contamination. Uh, They they had a a a lot of concerns about the long-term effect on their neighborhood from this installation. So I was asked to take a look at it to determine, remember that the particulars here were that the the site was actually divided into two parcels. One parcel was zoned appropriately for that kind of convenience store with, with a gas station, but the second half of the parcel was not. it was zoned only for single-family residences. And so the, the, that the, was,
0: the property on Sam Cooper, yeah. right was what was zoned sort of counterintuitively, that was the property that was zoned for residential.
2: Yes, and there's a long history behind why that is that I won't go into, but, but it did in, it was in fact zoned for residential. And so um, the board of adjustment, the way the board of adjustment works, is they will grant a zoning variance if there's some reason why the property cannot be used for its intended use, uh, for its for the what is allowable under the zoning. If there is a reason by virtue of a very unusual shape or topographical condition or some disqualifying factor that prevents the site from being used for its intended zoning, then they will grant variance. Well, as it turns out, on that portion of the site that is zoned for residential, it's possible to put single-family residential homes. Not many, but it's possible to do it. And so it really was not an issue that should have been brought to the Board of Adjustment because there was no reason for them to grant a variance.
0: So they were looking for some, a special exception saying, without this special exception, this project can't go forward.
2: That's precisely correct. That is what the developers were looking for.
0: Well, talk a little bit about how that isn't that project was inconsistent with plans for the area, and also the importance of that location as a gateway to an, an arts district.
2: I think that's the point, is that when you've got cars... It, you know, Cooper in Hollywood is a very, very... Uh, Sam Cooper in Hollywood is a very, very uh, busy intersection. And moving cars into and out of what was already a tight site, uh, what required, among other things, uh, interrupting the bike path along, along um, Broad Avenue with an exit from the parking lot of this convenience store, which would have been a conflict between pedestrians and bicyclists and the automobiles coming in and out of the of the store. It also meant that cars could come in off of San Cooper and go out onto Hollywood, but there was all of this um, it, it, it 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 didn't it meant for some vehicular confusion on that corner <clears throat> that was just incompatible with a nice walkable arts district that uh, that, that Broad Avenue is, is and wants to, to be more of. Uh, and with the advent of the apartments that are being proposed across the street, even more people are going to be walking through that area. It just didn't make sense to put a gas station there. Now, it does if you are a motorist on Sam Cooper and you never go into the Broad Avenue Arts District. It does if you think that a convenience store is an appropriate way to signal the entrance to an arts district. But from the neighbor's standpoint, it was inconsistent with and incompatible with their goals.
0: Well, and it seems to me, I think one of the arguments the developer made is that it's an odd-shaped parcel difficult to develop. I mean, part of me is like, we shouldn't have bought it in the first place because you (laughs) did buy it and it was odd shaped at the time. I remember when it was purchased. But also it seems to me that you could put plenty of things in that location. You could put a restaurant, you could put neighborhood commercial. There's all kinds of things. I mean, it might be difficult to use that back portion on Sam Cooper to squeeze every last dollar out of it, but plenty of things would go in that location, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely the point. Is that uh, there were many other uses that they could have considered for that site, not least of which might be another art gallery. But um, and you also have to remember that right next door is the um, I think it's called West Memorials. Yep, yeah,
0: the former post office. Right,
2: and they have an easement to they through that uh, that other residential piece of property that allows them access to and from their loading area. And that legal easement would have had to have been um, made null and void by the zoning ruling had it been approved, which would have meant that essentially they'd be out of business. There would be no way for them to conduct their business.
0: Is that was, Did that factor into the, the decision of the Board of Adjustment?
2: My understanding is that it did. I did not attend the meeting, but my understanding is that that was in fact a factor.
0: I was really impressed with the. I mean, I'd like to do a whole program just on community engagement, public participation in the COVID era. I was really impressed by the level of public participation Broad Avenue Arts District was able to get on that case. And also that they were, they prevailed against Board of Adjustment, which, as you and I both know, for a community organization, it's difficult to achieve, I think.
2: It absolutely can be difficult, and um, I think it's a tribute to and a testament to the strength of the community organization on Broad Avenue that they were able to pull together. My recollection is I was told that they had some 90 letters of opposition. I think so. Which is a lot. A
0: lot, yes.
2: And and they had people show up at the meeting and speak. And I mean, it was a uh, well-organized effort by folks who care about their their neighborhood, who care about their businesses and their business district. We ought to have more of that in Memphis, and they certainly pulled it off.
0: I think so, and kudos to Pat Brown and the, the other members of the, the Historic Broad Alliance because they did a great job. So, Ray, I'm going to just digress because I... Like to digress sometimes, and um, I want to talk to you about something. Talks about something that's a pet peeve of mine, and see if you can. Maybe I'm misunderstood about this, but one of the things that people always say in the community is, you know, you shouldn't put that gas station there because it's not the highest and best use of the property. And my understanding of highest and best use is really how it's going to make the most money. So I always tell people, don't use that argument because it doesn't make sense. Because the highest and best use probably is a gas station and a C-store. Am I wrong about, you have a lot of real estate experience, am I wrong about that?
2: No, I think the general consensus among the development community is that Uh, I mean, they're in business to make money, and you can't fault them for that. That's what they do. However, looking at it from a strictly economic standpoint and saying, yes, this is a very busy corner, yes, this would make a ton of money, but not considering the context, uh, again, it's not something they're set up to do. It's not within their business model, necessarily, to consider the context. That's why people need to be able to speak up and, and make their opinions known uh, when it's necessary. But highest and best use is one of those in the eye of the beholder things.
0: Right. Uh, well, my point is I hear community members using that as an argument, which I don't think holds much water, really. Um, I think it's, it's not an appropriate use or anyway. I think people misunderstand the expression. I guess that's where I'm going with it. Yeah, I don't
2: disagree with that. I think people do misunderstand the expression. Um, again, it's an eye of the beholder thing. If it, if what you think is the highest and best use is a park, then that's what you think. But and it may be, but it doesn't necessarily uh, mean the same thing to someone who's looking at it as an income generating property.
0: Okay, so let's pretend we're wa- We're on a walk, which could be plausible and we're going to walk around the corner and we're going to be on Summer Avenue Mm -hmm. because that's what I want to talk about next. Mm -hmm. So um, I real I love Summer Avenue. I've always loved it since I moved here in the nineties. For whatever reason, I've got a soft spot for sort of downtrodden commercial corridors and Summer Avenue I've heard described as, you know, a street where you can, there's nothing that you need that you can't get there, which I kind of get. But um, but Summer Avenue in recent years is kind of interesting. It's been there's a business association there that's done a lot of work to clean up the street and has done some branding around making it an international avenue, which I think is great. But as part of that blight eradication, you know, older buildings are being torn down, Mm -hmm. and what's going in there are you know newer things that are. Newer and on some level more attractive, but are. I feel like the fabric of the, the street is going away. Uh, so I wanted just to reflect on that a little bit. Um, you know, there was an article in the Daily Memphian today about how a portion of the street, I think from Holmes to Sevier, if that's how you pronounce it. There's sort of a a moratorium on zoning changes, and that's a part of the street that has where the buildings are still pulled up to the street, and a moratorium on rezonings, and I think it's to prevent more auto dealers from going in. And also, there's down the street, there's a church that's threatened, but... I don't even know what my question is, Ray. Let's—I'm just interested in your perspective on that because I see the street <laughs> ch- see tra- I see the street changing. I see some good things. I see some bad things. It makes me very sad. You know, when the flea market was torn down, and now there's a dollar store. I mean, that flea market was very dilapidated. But is there a balance? How can we? Uh, how can we get both? I guess that's my starting question, and then I hope you'll riff on that some. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay.
0: Putting you on the spot.
2: <laughs> well, there are actually two areas that the uh, that the planning department has been looking at to rezone and to exactly, as you said, limit the number of used car lots and other kind of unsightly and deleterious uses on the street. Um those those two areas happen to, as you mentioned, have a concentration of some of the older retail buildings that are more pedestrian oriented in the sense that they're pulled up to the sidewalk more. They are uh, quirky and unusual, and but they form a more or less continuous street wall, as opposed to all of these automobile oriented uses like drive-in. Uh, restaurants and gas stations that are little bits of buildings surrounded by asphalt, which lends itself to what we all in the the planning and, and design profession refer to as urban sprawl. And what that means really is unrestrained growth without any sense of a plan. Uh, And it leads to kind of this sense of formlessness and visual chaos and lack of clarity and generally unappealing environment that you just want to drive through as quickly as possible unless there's some place that you happen to need to go to. And so what the planning department is doing with the rezoning is trying to reverse that, trying to correct some of that sprawl. And make it possible over time uh, for some sense of walkability and pedestrianization to come back to uh, Summer Avenue. Now, Summer, because it is such a wide street and carries so much traffic, is not eligible to be one of those streets that could benefit from a road diet. I'm
0: I'm sorry to hear that.
2: Yeah, unfortunately.
0: Didn't it it have angled parking at one time back in the day?
2: Back in the day it did. And there there are ways uh, with slip roads uh, that run parallel to the main traffic road that feed to the buildings on either side. There are ways to make it work, but it would require an enormous investment on the city and the state. uh, And um, they're they're not likely to do that anytime soon. So what the planning folks are trying to do is to at least set up a, a dam, a barrier to more deterioration of the, the built environment along that street in the two concentrations of retail that still have some sense of urban form to them. That, it's a holding action. Uh, and hopefully what it will do is encourage developers to come and put the right kinds of uses in those two areas and make them into little shopping districts within the longer context of Summer Avenue. Now, will that work? I don't know. That's, you know, ask me 20 years from now.
0: Well, so, is, so what you're telling me is there's a, there's a summer strategy
2: I, I'm assuming that there. I I don't know that for a fact, but it. But given the actions that they've taken, I assume there is a strategy to at least protect uh, those two districts.
0: Well, at one time, I think that was, again, back in the day, it was a more pedestrian-friendly street. Sure. Um, and some of those strips have parking behind them. So, but could that? can that come back and what kind of interventions would be needed is it just incentives for developers or are there other things
2: uh incentives are certainly useful uh, extremely useful the 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 other possibility well first of all it would be very helpful to have a plan for both of those two areas to actually have a proper plan that delineates the goals and shows a vision of what they can become and encourages people to want to reach for that vision because it's something they want to have. Uh, so that that would be the first thing that I would say, is to start by knowing where you're trying to go, where you're trying to end up with this strategy or with Summer Avenue, and um, the, the that would then allow you to begin to do things like concentrating parking to one side or to the rear of those buildings to have uh, not just individual parking for individual buildings, but maybe a, a communal lot that served a whole strip of buildings at one time. I mean, there are ways to there are ways to make all of this work. Um, it but it it requires some some vision and some leadership and uh, whether that comes from the private sector or from the public sector or some combination of the two remains to be seen.
0: Well, and I think balancing the need for blight eradication, which we all know is very important. I mean, they tore down that building at the corner of national and um, national and summer I guess a couple years ago on the, I guess it's on the south, east, southwest corner. I mm-hmm. think it was a bar and a t-shirt shop. It was very um, in poor condition. It was blighted. The community wanted it gone, but it was a big deal. It was a uh, to me. I wasn't sure that was. I was sorry to. I got it that the community wanted it gone, but I was sorry to see it go, because that's a know, an important corner that's the terminus of the hopefully the future heights line. And sometimes it's think those things seem short sighted. But I understand that if you don't have a, if you don't have someone that wants to fix a building up, it's in poor condition. It's just a, it's just a, it's all it's complicated.
2: It's extremely complicated. And I think what's happened over time is that we as a community have gotten smarter about demolishing things that might have some useful life left in them. Uh, if you look at what happened south, uh, along Cleveland, south of Crosstown Concourse, and how that area is beginning to come back into buildings that had been vacant for years and it had suffered from deferred maintenance. And now it's beginning to come back because somebody in, had the sense to invest in Crosstown Concourse And it has become the anchor for this whole area. If there are uh, opportunities to create those kinds of game-changing anchors on Summer Avenue, then some of those buildings will turn themselves from blight to useful uh, structures again. On the other hand, you can't just let them sit there and deteriorate. They become dangerous. They become uh, uh, havens for all sorts of uh, of undesirable activity. They, they are kind of a black eye on the city to anybody coming in from out of town and traveling on summer or anyplace else in town. So you have to be willing to mitigate blight where, where you have to. But um, but there, as you said, there's a balance. There's a balance. And I, I believe that we are moving away from the era of wholesale demolition and moving toward the era of let's see what we can do to save some of the fabric that we have left.
0: I agree with that. And I think the western side of summer, where there's spillover from broad, there's a lot of you know um, creative energy over there. And I think we'll see we'll see some more of that and hopefully that'll expand eastward and yeah, I'm I'm guardedly optimistic. I've always, as I said, I've always had a real soft spot for summer, and um, but would like it to stay, um, stay a little urban.
2: Well, I think it's going to be eclectic for sure, regardless of what happens. It's going to be an interesting mixture of, um, as you said, just about everything you can name is somewhere on summer. And um, it It runs the gamut of uses. So uh, what we have to be careful of, and we haven't been so careful about this in the past, but I think we're beginning to understand. Our city, because it is so big in in square miles, it's 334 square miles. That's huge. That's enormous for a population of our size. And so the only way to navigate this town is by automobile. And we have given automobiles the precedence over every other form of mobility and over every other form of transportation, uh, and we're paying the price for that. And so now that we are finally coming to grips with the fact that automobiles, um, we, really need to, we really need to change the way we get around and the way we use uh, automobiles, we are two things are happening one is that a lot of automobile related uses are going out of business which is not good cuz they leave blight behind uh, but the other good thing is that we're rethinking how we develop and how we redevelop and so i hope that as more and more people begin to turn away from internal combustion engines and and find other ways to get around that a straight like summer will re, will regain some of its um, some of its appeal.
0: I hope so too, for sure. And all the neighborhoods north and south of there—that's another whole conversation. But right. some real interesting neighborhoods, the Heights and Berclair, and hopefully we'll be able to highlight some of those in future shows. Well, Ray, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I've been talking to Ray Brown, local urban designer and one of our regular <laughs> commentators on the new Memphis Metropolis show. So thanks and I look forward to talking to you again soon.
2: Very good. I, I do the same.
0: You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. The show airs every Monday at 1, so I hope you'll check back next week. And stay tuned for Memphis Underground coming up next.